0: You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Well, if I haven't met you or I don't know who you, who you are and you don't know who I am, my name is Brittany and I'm the lead pastor here. And it's really good to be back. Uh, before we jump into the message today, I wanted to say thank you. Our family has had so much support. Folks have dropped off diapers and wipes, meals. You've covered our shifts in, in upstairs in Kingdom Kids so that Tim and I could spend the last six weeks sleep deprived and, and sort of just showing up on Sunday half awake but being here with you. So we really appreciate it. Every time we've had a child, you guys have been this beautiful extended family to us. And so online, here in person, just thank you so much for all that you have done on our behalf to help us be able to have a child and still do what God has called us to do, which is to minister here in Cahoes and be part of this community. So thank you. I'm excited to end our series on the minor prophets I can't believe it's been 12 weeks we got through 11. technically asher was born and disrupted micah so i don't know where we'll fit micah in but we will get to him just because i'm that type a that i can't have us go through the entire bible and miss a book that really would bother me so we'll we'll wrap micah at another juncture but if you are new with us this is your first time here with us this morning we started the beginning we started going through the entire bible back in 2022 so it's been a year and a couple months and we have officially made it through about two-thirds of the old testament we have a third to go Um, and the reason that we're doing this is each sunday we're coming together we're taking apart different books and we're looking at the context we're looking at what the literary structure is because we want to understand the bible as it was originally intended it's a really old book written to a very different group of people from a very different culture with a different language. And so there's a lot that we can miss unless we take the time to unpack it. But when we do, we can discover God's heart in the midst of that, and it can come alive to us in a way that transforms us and helps us to live into his kingdom today. So if you missed any of our talks, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. But today, I'm going to launch us into our last book Malici, if you're Italian; Malachi, if you're not. Everybody who's really biblical, I ought to have a dad joke somewhere. I was born to have a dad joke every time. Um, but before we launch into his book, which is only four short chapters, I want to start us off with a question. And this is going to be one of those response things, so you can you can shout things out to me. But what qualities or characteristics do you think are essential for a healthy relationship? Grace, Grace. trust. trust. Honesty, yeah. communication, vulnerability, vulnerability. respect, hmm? respect. Wow. love. Ooh, I he- Bob, what did you say? <laughs> Quitting smoking. That is helpful. That absolutely is. Patience. Fun? Fun is good. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. We like to have fun. Trust, trust. yes. That's the third person that said trust this morning good. There's a lot of different things that come together in the recipe to create a healthy relationship. There's not just one element and we can nail it and then we're good for the rest of our lives. Um, there's, a, there's a number of things, but doctors John and Julie Gottman, who are these renowned relational therapists, they've done a ton of research, they've written a lot of books, and they've done a lot of different counseling, thousands, millions of hours I'm sure at this point, I said that there are basically two non-negotiable foundational things to a healthy relationship, trust and commitment. There's a little picture. They have it described as the foundation walls of a house, which is the backdrop of that slide. You can certainly Google that later. But essentially, they say without trust and commitment, you're never going to be able to build something sustainable with another person. There's always going to be cracks in the foundation that will threaten to pull it all apart. And without those two things to hold it together, it's basically inevitable. In fact, they've met with couples and said, we can guarantee that we will know if you are going to if your marriage is going to work or if it's going to end in divorce, basically, within a five-minute conversation. And these are two of the things that they're looking for, is is there genuine trust and is there genuine commitment? And to define those things, because we all have different ideas of what trust and commitment would be, they have narrowed trust down to believing that your partner has your best interest at heart basically all the time. So it's not just trust, like, oh, they're going to be faithful. It's trust that your partner has your best interest at heart at all times. And then commitment are the actions taken daily where you bring that person with you on your journey. So instead of all the opportunities we have in the course of a day to kind of do our own thing, be independent, blaze our own path, Commitment in a relationship is saying, I am thinking of you when I make decisions with our money, when I'm making decisions with my time, with my body, with my energy. I am accounting for you. I am bringing you along on my day-to-day journey. And those are the two things that help to build a healthy, stable, sustainable relationship. And why does that matter at the beginning of Malachi? It's because... As we've been reading through the Old Testament, one of the things that we have seen so clearly is that God is in pursuit of a healthy relationship with us. That at the core of this beautiful book is the creator of the universe doing everything in his power to reach across the table and say, I created you, Erica, Vanessa, Casey, all of us by name and say, I created you, for a healthy, thriving relationship with me. And in order for us to enjoy that relationship with God, there needs to be trust and commitment. God has already revealed through the book that he is loyal. We've read Israel's insanity, and we're gonna read a little bit more of it today. And God continues to be faithful and to love and pursue Israel, even when they reject him and run away from him. Even when they do it both, What they think is covertly and when they do it overtly and so for us to have that healthy stable relationship with God what it really takes is trust and commitment on our part and that's something that humanity inherently struggles to have with God so what we've done is we've read through or we started reading through the three scrolls of the Old Testament to launch we'll get to the New Testament probably this fall if according if everything goes according to plan Um, We've read through the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, and essentially what we find here is the creation of the world and the creation of Israel. So the way that those, you know, people got started and the way that the whole storyline of the Old Testament, where did those folks come from? We find it here. The second book, which we're going to complete today, or the second scroll, was the Nevi'im. And this is where we find the continuation of Israel's story. So the historical books are here. We find the prophets here. It's basically... If we're going in a chronological order, it gets us up to the book of Malachi, or essentially the timeline right before Jesus gets here. So the third book, the Ketavim, is where we find the wisdom books, some more poetry, Daniel, uh, Esther, some of those other you know, one-off things. And they don't add to the chronological story of Israel. They go back to the first two books and elaborate on them. So essentially, if you're thinking chronologically, if you're an A to Z thinker, you've got the Torah, you've got the Nevi'im, and then the next chronological section of the Bible would be the New Testament, because the Ketuvim comes back and just speaks into what's already happened. And as we read the scrolls in their original order, you'll notice our Bible is not lined up like that. The Christian Bible, we there was a reason. They thought Malachi is a really good ending point, right? Because it's right before you know 400 years of silence and then Jesus, we'll put that one last as a really nice transition piece but the problem with that is when we take them out of their original order we can lose some of the greater perspective that God intended as these scrolls were put together and compiled and what we find is what I just mentioned we see this beautiful picture of God's loyalty in the first two books we see a God who created humanity a humanity that has blown apart the goodness of that creation And yet God has been faithful, loyal, true to his creation and said, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to put it all back together because I love you. I created you out of love. I continue to love you and I want to restore you so that you can enjoy that love with me. But the second piece we see as we read through the Torah and the Nevi'im has been Israel's utter inability to really live in God's love. He chose them. He gives them this beautiful land to live in he protects he provides he continues to restore and yet they struggle to truly believe that God has their best at heart they struggle to truly believe that God has their best at heart and because of that it leads them to create all sorts of destruction in their society Oppression, injustice, abuse, not just in society, but also in individual stories. We read about David and the way he blew up his family. We read about family legacies and curses because people make horrible decisions because they run away from God. And as we read through Israel's story in the Old Testament, it's hard not to see our own story. And that's kind of the point, right? God didn't just give this so that we could see Israel's story and think, wow, they were terrible people. It's a mirror, a reflection, where God doesn't say, oh, you're terrible, but he says, you're broken. You're really struggling to honor and live into the love that I've created you for, and it leads you down a really self-destructive path when you don't trust me and commit to me. And I'm trying to call you to a greater space, to healing and wholeness, to stable relationship. Because if I'm honest, I read the Old Testament, at least the first two books, and I feel like Israel's on a roller coaster ride. Sometimes they're really passionate about God, sometimes they're really not, and it's a little unnerving to think I could also end up on my own roller coaster ride of a relationship with God. Where some days, I'm really committed to him. I I trust that he loves me, and I'm gonna do what he says, and I'm surrendered. And other days, frankly, I'm not sure if he's still good, and we can feel ourselves kind of vacillate between the two, and frankly, that's really discouraging. It can make our faith journey feel extremely unstable. It can lead us to a place of despair and depression and anxiety even because as much as we want to love and serve God, it feels like we really can't quite get there and we get stuck in a bit of a rut just like Israel did And, and that's not an enjoyable experience for anyone but it's also deeply normal. So if you've struggled with that, then that's not an unusual thing but as we conclude in the book of Malachi this morning, as we wrap up the Nevi'im, there's, this, there's two verses at the very end of the book where God makes this promise to humanity that we don't have to struggle on this roller coaster ride of faith, where we don't have to continue to live the way that Israel did, trusting him, not trusting him, following him, running away from him, being all in, and creating a giant mess we don't actually have to continue that same trajectory that Israel started, that Israel shows us, because God has reached into humanity and he's given us an opportunity to have actual trust, actual commitment that leads to stability. And I think that's what he wants to to talk to us about this morning and share with us is I think there's an opportunity here from the Lord to say, if you have felt stuck in a rut or if you have really struggled with ups and downs in your spiritual journey, there's a place to rest with him today. So that's where we're going to go. Let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into Malachi. Oh, God, it's good to be in your home with your people, in, enjoying your presence. And that's what we want this morning is more of you. So we just invite you to come and move in your word, in our midst. And we know that you are desiring that. So we just look with anticipation to how you will move today. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little backdrop on Malachi, in case this is your first rodeo with him. He is writing. Here's a nice chronological order. I like to see the history of things. It really is helpful to me. So this is basically who's writing at the same time as everybody else. And Malachi writes around the same time as Haggai and Zechariah. These are the folks that have come back from exile, And for Malachi in particular, he gets on the scene after the exiles, after the folks have returned from exile have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and they've rebuilt the temple. And each of these elements is a lot less grand and beautiful than it was before their exile. The walls of Jerusalem have essentially gone back to the original footprint before the major expansions under David and Solomon. And the temple itself is not nearly as grand and glorious and ornate, gold and marble and all those things. It's a lot more subdued. But at least, at least the structures that God said would be in place when he came back to restore Israel, at least they're built. And so in Israel's mind, God's restoration is just on the horizon. And they're basically looking for a few things. The prophets told them that God's presence would return to the temple. Ezekiel saw him leave. And then at the very end of Ezekiel, he said, he's going to come home. And so they're waiting for God to come home because the temple's built, but the glory of God has not returned and filled it in a tangible way where they can see him. They're waiting for a sweeping restoration. It's basically an opportunity for them to return to prominence among the nations. Right now, Israel's is continuing to be oppressed. Babylon takes them into exile. Persia, Medo-Persia basically keeps them in exile and then says, well, a couple of you can go home. And so they're like, what point are we no longer going to be under someone else's government? We're waiting to be free and be our own people again. And that hasn't happened yet. And they're waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and the things that he is supposed to bring, which is peace and justice and wholeness to the world. And so they, they're like, we built the structures, God. Now we're just waiting on you to do the rest. And the days become weeks. And they become months. And anybody who enjoys waiting is like, it's no big deal, but most of us hate it. (laughs) And so the weeks and the months add up into years. That actually add up into generations where God's not coming and doing the things that they thought he was going to do. And so the expected glorious manifestation of God's presence in their midst doesn't happen. And what it does is it rocks a people who already struggle to trust God. Basically, Israel says, If you're not going to do the things you said you were going to do, then why are we even bothering to worship you at all? They move from this place of waiting to basically, I give up. There's no reason for us to continue to worship God anymore, so let's just figure out something else. Let's just do our own thing. Let's just go back to trying it ourselves. And of course, every time Israel has done that in the past, they've blown up their society. And that's exactly what happens today, and that's exactly what Malachi addresses. If you want to look at the Bible Project handout that we have, we're gonna cover the six disputes fairly quickly. You are welcome to use the Bible Project videos online. I encourage you to. If you're not watching them before or after the message, it's a great synopsis. It digs in a little bit more, and there's additional resources you can find. But the first three disputes in the first in the next three disputes, there's six total, parallel one another. So in the first three, God confronts Israel's lack of trust in his love for them. He says, why do you doubt that I love you? And the first thing that they say, because this is a very sassy Israel that we're about to find this morning. If you think that they have been testy in the past, this is, at least in my mind, teenage Israel. We've all been teenagers before. And so I'm just hearing it in a teenage voice with the eyebrows and the look and the loathing sometimes and the first dispute Israel says how have you even loved us God how dare I could think it was Imani's voice as I was reading that I was like God's sitting up in heaven like excuse me and he literally says to them why do you doubt my love you and Edom Jacob and Edom are both descendants of Abraham your twin brothers and I have shown you favor over your own family member. I have clearly chosen you, selected you, and shown you ongoing favor through the course of your entire nationhood. How actual, dare that you would think that I don't love you. I've still taken care of Edom, but not nearly the way that I have loved and supported you. In fact, I've been even a little bit more harsh on them because they have not been taking care of you the way they were supposed to. And doesn't that remind us how sometimes our short-term problems can erase all of God's faithfulness really quickly yeah. like all of a sudden we're like I just I'm dealing with this thing right here in front of me and the 20 30 40 years of our life or some of you youth youth 10 13 years suddenly it's like he was never there in any of it and that's what Israel's saying to him and then he goes on to say you've created a gigantic mess because you have doubted once again my love and they say and God says you've despised my name and of course Israel says How have we despised your name, God? How have we rejected you? And he's like, well, let me tell you. You have not been bringing the things that you're supposed to bring for worship. Because you've become so apathetic, because you don't believe that I love you, now you're bringing sacrifices that are barely worthy of arriving on the altar. When God set up the temple worship, he said, bring me your best. Why? Because when we give God our best, it's a sign of trust when we tithe off of our net income or our gross income, when we, when we bring the greatest thing we have, when we give him our first time, you know, we open our eyes in the morning and the first thing we do is we give God our time. When we give him our best, it's a sign of trust that he is going to take care of us. And so for Israel, he said, bring me your best animals. You know, bring me the, the one-year-old male animals, no blemishes, no stains, you know, they don't have a janky leg, they're not like half blind. Bring me your best. And instead, Israel's like, they're treating God like a recycling bin. Like, we're actually going to bring you our worst because we don't really like this animal. We're kind of hoping he's going to die. We don't want him to, like, get mixed up with the really good ones. And God says, you're despising my name. You're, you're showing me on a daily basis that you don't actually trust me because instead of bringing me your best, you're giving me your worst. And then they go on to, go on to say, well, God, how come you don't accept our worship anymore? And he's, I can only envision him being like, Really? The first two things were not enough, that you now have are, you're now asking me this. Um, and he says on top, this is, this is a powerful one. On top of treating me poorly, which is something I don't love, and I'm going to call you to account for, but on top of treating me poorly, you're also treating one another poorly. And what was happening, and I want you to hear this if you're a woman or a person of color or someone who's in, found yourself on the margins of society really frequently. The Israelite men were divorcing the wives that they married when they were young, the wives of their youth, basically the person they've been with forever, in order to go and marry some ladies next door, foreign women, which isn't so much the issue that they're foreign, but that then as they start marrying them, they begin embracing the gods of these other nations around them. And God says, how dare you divorce your women just because you don't want to be married to them anymore? God takes an extremely hard stance on the fact that at times when we become apathetic to him, we become apathetic to the people around us, and we start treating them like garbage. And God says, that's not acceptable to me. I see what you're doing, and I do not condone it. I condemn it. Your behavior towards one another is not something that I'm going to be able to bless, which is why I'm no longer accepting your worship. And it's hard because the reality is those men still had free will. We can be in societies where we find ourselves under the thumb of someone who is oppressing, misusing, or abusing us. And God sees that and he does condemn that, but he doesn't take away the free will from the person who's hurting us, which means there are times where we can feel like God doesn't see us and he's forgotten. And this part right here is a direct reminder that if you have been misused or mistreated, the Lord sees you and he is on your side. The next three disputes, four to six, basically parallel back. So again, Israel comes with this really sassy question. They're like, God, you've been so unjust. You haven't haven't paid attention. You haven't done what you said you were going to do to the prophets. I know. It's terrible. He says, you haven't taken care of our enemies the way that we expected you to. Where is this God of justice? And he goes and he just shakes his head, at least in my image of the Lord at this moment. And he says... You have the audacity to ask me where I am because I haven't dealt with your enemies in the timeline that you wanted. Meanwhile, back at camp, back home, you are practicing witchcraft. You are oppressing your employees, widows, and orphans. You are abusing refugees and immigrants. You're lying. You have created a corrupt society and you have the nerve to ask me Why I haven't dealt with your enemies yet. And this, all I could think of is when Jesus says, deal with the plank in your own eye first before you take the speck out of your neighbors. Where God says, you want justice and yet you don't even practice it on your own soil. You only want justice to the degree that it serves you, not to the degree that it actually changes you, not to the degree that it actually honors me. And so no, no. I'm not ready to go and do that thing yet. My timeline will still be accomplished, but I'm not going to speed it up while you're still dragging your heels to do the very things I've asked you not to do. And so we go into number five and number six. Number five parallels back to two, and they go back to, how have we cheated you, God? We're doing everything you said we were supposed to do. We're still going to the temple. We're still doing the stuff. And he says, you're not bringing the full tithe with you anymore. Not only are you bringing garbage to offer on the altar, but it's not even enough to take care of the priests and the poor, which is what the tithe was used for. The temple that you've built is already falling into disrepair. You are not showing me that you trust me. You're barely showing up to the relationship at all. The commitment has wavered. And then in number six, they go on to say, how have we spoken against you, God? How have we, how have we not been worshipful for you? How have we not been blessing you? And he goes to say, you have quite literally been telling the people around you it is pointless to serve me. You have become so apathetic and so disengaged from a relationship with me that you have just started to declare, what's the point? God's not good. He's not doing what we want. He's not showing up. He's not taking care of our enemies. He's not dealing with my problems. So what's the point in serving him? As much as I want to blame Israel for this and say, "That's how could they say that? They've seen him move we have all done the same. Categorically, I I don't think anyone in this room can say we haven't had a moment where we've said, God, you're not taking care of things, and I don't even know if it's worth it to worship you anymore. And that's not a condemnation on us, it's just the reality of the human condition. We cannot enjoy the goodness of God without trust and commitment. God was ready to give everything to Israel. And the reality was they couldn't enjoy it couldn't enjoy the promised land they couldn't enjoy the relationship the favor the beauty they couldn't give it to the rest of the world because they didn't trust God truly loved them and so their commitment was never fully there and again it's not a condemnation it's the reality of what has happened since the beginning of time it's the same story with Adam and Eve in the garden the enemy comes he's like hey God's not really all that great is he and Eve begins to doubt God's best for them. God gave them one rule, and we always think about the singular rule of like, oh, they broke that. But what really got broken was Eve's trust in God in the garden, where she says, I don't actually know if you are good because you are keeping me from knowing good and evil, and that is probably better than all of the things we have. And so it was in that moment that their commitment, Adam and Eve's commitment to God wavers, and they eat, and they take control, and they create self-destruction just like we watch Israel repeat over and over and over again. And it can feel like, "Ooh, what a happy ending, Brittany. So glad we went through the prophets. What a joyous time. We're all like partying, confetti, balloons. And the reality is the prophets are a really deep dive, a really narrow focus into the whole story of Israel and the story of humanity. And it's so hard to look at because it can be so ugly at times. And then we realize, ooh, that ugliness is in me too sometimes maybe a lot and is there any hope is there genuinely any hope that we can get off of that back and forth with him and actually trust God and experience his goodness taste and see it and live in it and in Malachi 3 16 to 17 God talks about a group that he calls the faithful remnant he said then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other and the Lord listened to what they said in his presence A scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared them and always thought about the honor of his name, a people who trusted him and were committed to him. And he says, they will be my people. There's a promise, a really short promise, where God hints at a time in the future when humanity isn't going to have to live on this trust roller coaster, this self-destructive roller coaster, really, where some days we're all in and we're listening to the Lord and we're enjoying the intimacy and we're enjoying the favor and we feel his peace even when our world is chaos, even when our circumstances are chaos, and being on the other side of it and trying to take self-control and trying to do things that we think are good for ourselves and run in in our own way and then ultimately just blow ourselves up, which we've all got our own stories of that. We can share them later over a cup of coffee. They're always pretty ugly. And so what happens after Malachi is 400 years of silence then go on, roughly, between Malachi and the arrival of Jesus. There's no messages. There's no messengers. And the people are just left wondering and waiting in this place of utter discouragement. This wasn't a really beautiful 400-year wait. This was really ugly. Because think about where they're at and what they're saying to God. And he's like, there's a time coming when I'm going to do all the things that you're waiting on. It's not now. Bye He didn't really leave, but he didn't say anything extra. And they're just left in that place of bitterness, really. And so it's interesting to think about that fact that we jump ahead to Jesus, and Israel's still oppressed. This time it's the Roman Empire. We've moved a couple times up, but they still aren't their own governance. They're still not experiencing his goodness. They still haven't seen him come and refill the temple with his glory. If they hadn't given up before, they probably had by now. And that's what makes Jesus so radical when he shows up on the scene, declaring the good news. That's why this message was so overwhelming. The people were pretty certain God had given up on them for good 400 years before. By now, it's pretty much set in stone. So the three major religious groups were trying different ways to get God to come back. The the Pharisees were trying to be ultra-religious. We're going to follow all the rules. You've got the zealots who are like, we're going to bring about militant change. And so Jesus comes on the scene talking to these people who are desperate, hopeless, waiting, disillusioned. And he says a couple things. God sees you. God loves you. God's drawn near to you. And he is going to make all things new. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's presence here on earth is at hand. He is returning to his creation. You do not need to be hopeless because he sees you in your waiting. And he's not given up on you, even if you've given up on him. And then he goes to the cross, and we we hear the story and we'll hear it again next weekend. But I want you to realize that one of the things that he destroys on the cross is the shame and stain caused by our self destructive choices. The things that we think God cannot overcome, Jesus handles on the cross so that we do not have to walk around feeling eternally guilty, right? He says, I want to testify to what I've been saying by removing the things that have kept you from feeling like you can come close to me. He rises three days later, giving us access to live into the newness of creation, to be new people now, Not like a hundred years later when we're in heaven, but to experience here and now as children of God. But the final thing he does, which is where I want to end today, is something he promises back in John and that comes to fruition in Acts. He says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's got a really specific job. I'm going to read a, a chunk of John 14 right now. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. I'm going to heaven Going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Anyone who does not love me, jumping down to verse 24, will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things the good news, all of that stuff. I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when my Father sends the advocate, the Holy Spirit, as my representative, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. So Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent from God. He's going to come down as the advocate with two core things that he's going to do. He's going to remind us of everything that God has taught us in the past, that Jesus taught us, which is what? God loves me. God sees me. God's pursuing my best. God is making all things new. His kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. It's beginning to move. He's going to teach us those things, and he's going to testify when we start to forget. The very thing that Israel struggled to live in was this constant place of trust that God was in pursuit of our best. And God says, you can't do that on your own. So I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to testify every time you start to doubt me. Every time your trust begins to waver because of circumstances, because of trauma, because of barriers, because you had a bad day at work and you're getting fired, God says, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit because in those moments, your trust is going to start to shake. And that's the thing that's going to kill your ability to experience relationship with me. And because you can't do it on your own, Israel's already shown us this, you can't trust me on your own. I'm going to give you myself so that you can remember that I am for you. If you think you can manage your own spiritual life with your own power, with your own motivation, with your own strength, you will end up in a spiritual rut of discouragement just like Israel did. The only way we can be faithful to God, the only way we can truly trust him and live in commitment to him is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to testify and say, God, I don't think you feel all that good today because my world is falling apart. And the Holy Spirit reminds us, Even in your circumstances, God is faithful. Look back on the words of Jesus. Look back on the Old Testament and see his loyalty, see his consistency and his trustworthiness, even when your life is falling apart. And remember that you can ask him and he will bring you the strength and the power to continue to trust God and experience his love. That is the crux of what's coming that Malachi points to. And this is, This is how we live today, because we can continue to try and live like Israel, where it's like, I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to get up at 5, and I'm going to read the Bible for two hours, and if you honestly need help with that, just call Terry, because she legit gets up at 3 every day. But for the rest of us who are like, at 5 a.m., you're like, I want to read the Bible, and it hits you in the face because you fall back asleep. You know, we have so many times where we are trying to do this on our own, And we say we rely on the Holy Spirit, but we don't actually live that way. And then it bites us really hard because life is going to be troublesome. There's going to be health scares. There's going to be job loss. There's going to be family dynamics that are really challenging. There's going to be days where you aren't sure if God is even up there. And in those moments, if you are just like, I'm going to muster through, you're probably going to take a self-destructive course at some point like Israel did. I don't think the faithful remnant were people that were really spiritually strong. I don't think that the faithful remnant are people who never doubted God's goodness. I don't even think that the faithful remnant are like, oh, you know, they're the ones like leading churches and stuff. I think the faithful remnant are the ones who learn to rely on God and that's why they have the dynamic of relationship with him that he talks about in Malachi. And that is such hope because we can all do that. We don't have to be special. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible and pray for 100 hours a day. What you do is you surrender completely to the Holy Spirit and say, I need your help right now. My world is falling apart. It doesn't look good. Where is God? I don't see him. And when you get on your knees or you get in your prayer spot and you just say, Holy Spirit, I need you to testify to his goodness right now. I need you to testify that God loves me and hasn't given up on me or my family. I need you to testify that you're gonna provide for me even though I'm between jobs. I need you to remind me of all of your faithfulness and goodness because I'm having a hard time seeing it right now. And guess what, he will because he loves to. He loves to talk about the goodness of God. It's the very thing that we were created to live in and celebrate. So that's your application. That's my application, especially as we go into Holy Week and as we go through, well, let's be honest, as we go through another election cycle, as we go through inflation, as we go through a housing crisis, as we go through, and my family, every, I feel like everyone here has gone through the most recent respiratory stuff that's going on. As we walk through all of that and it looks like it's just ugly at times, the Holy Spirit anchors us in the goodness and the love of God. And he says, God is always working on your behalf. So you can trust him and you can commit to him. Would you please stand with me as we move into ministry time? I'm already ready for Dan's, ang- well, not angry message, but Dan's going to be like, Brittany, you still, still didn't do your right amount of time. Uh, every, every Monday. It's fine. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I think we're just gonna let him testify this morning. You know the spots in your own life or your own heart where it's just been tough to trust him. I'll be honest, Tim and I have had a hard time trusting with how we're gonna figure out life with three kids. It feels like we can't quite get around it. Some of you are trying to figure out how to trust him with a job. You need a job, you need a house, you need healing, you need recovery. You need your family to work. You need peace. Oh, sorry. I think Dave was coming in for these. What you need is for the Holy Spirit to testify this morning that God is good and that he loves you. And that however the timeline looks, he is pursuing your best. So Holy Spirit, we invite you. We know you're already here. We invite you to come and testify to the goodness of God in our midst.